Thanks for downloading this podcast from Burghead Free Church in Murray, Scotland. We exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Our vision is to grow to be a vibrant all-age church of 100 disciples. Find out more at burgheadfreechurch.org. Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 to 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms round him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. 
Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Well, folks, if you have that open in the Bible, keep it open, um, but it will be on the screen as well. Let me just pray again as we come to think about those words. Heavenly Father, as we gather today, you know our hearts. You know the hurt and the anguish and the joy and the anxiety that's within each one of us. And more than that, Lord, you know where we stand before you. You know which of the characters in this story that we are like. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make it clear to us today where we stand with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are plenty of things about this year of COVID that have been hard. Not just the fear of illness, although there's that, of course, um, also the uncertainty, the disruption uh, to businesses and schools and colleges and universities and everything else. And then, of course, there are the economic costs, many of which are yet to come. The furlough scheme has been extended, but it can't last forever. And sadly, many jobs will likely cease to exist come next March. But there is another significant cost as well. And this one's a cost that's hard to measure. Now, this is the personal and relational cost. Uh, there's a relational cost to marriages that are going through the ringer because of all the stress and tension and the fact that we had to homeschool. And then there's the relational and personal co cost caused by the horrific spike in domestic abuse. But there is another relational cost as well. And it is the cost of simply not seeing people. Being cut off from your closest friends and family in a way that no Zoom call can ever really replace. We know, don't we, in many ways, that relationships are the most precious things we have. And so to be indefinitely separated from your loved ones feels excruciating. Now, some of us have lost dear ones uh, in this time of COVID. But for most of us, those separations are at least temporary. In one way or another, through one vaccine or another, we will be reunited with the friends and the family that we haven't been able to see. But some relational breakdowns are much more permanent and devastating than that. For example, there's the marriage or the friendship that goes down in a ball of flames as one party leads, uh, leaves through a slammed door 
after an awful argument. Other times, relationships end in a, in a slower, in a colder way. People just seem to drift apart. And then one day they, they wake up and all the warmth and closeness has gone. Well, today we reach Luke chapter 15. We have been journeying with Jesus through Luke, exploring who he is and what he did and what he said. And most importantly, in the second half of Luke's gospel, that's from chapter 9, verse 51 onwards, we see that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He is heading there to the climax of the story, to the end point of his earthly life, which, of course, is his death on the cross. And last week, we encountered a famous parable that Jesus told, maybe the most famous story ever told, the Good Samaritan. And we discovered that far from it being a kind of moralistic tale that was only about the way we should behave, it was actually a story that pointed to Jesus himself, who is our good Samaritan, who comes to rescue us and pays the costly price of rescue through his death on the cross. And if that was the most famous story ever told, I think you could make a good case for this one being the second most famous We're focused on from verse 11 to verse 32, that is the tale of these two brothers. It is a story of broken relationships, but ultimately it's a story of our broken relationship with God. But as always, we can't just dive into a story without understanding the context. So here's our first heading, it's all about the the context. Two banquets. What do I mean? Well, have a look at chapter 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that is the the religious establishment, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And the question is begged, who has Jesus come for? It was unusual, to say the least, for a rabbi, a holy man, to spend his time with the riffraff of society, with the sinners, with the morally and ritually unclean. But that is exactly what Jesus does. He's sitting down to banquet with sinners. And it doesn't go unnoticed by the religious establishment who take him to task for having table fellowship with these sorts of people. But the context to that is that Jesus has also just been teaching about another banquet, a second, more significant banquet, the great banquet of heaven. That's back in chapter 14, verse 15 and following. So the question of who Jesus eats with is a loaded one. It's not just about who will eat their tuna sandwiches with Jesus here at lunchtime on earth. The real question behind the question is who will have fellowship with Jesus both now and in eternity? Who will find a place at the great banquet in the kingdom of God? Who will get a seat, not just at some earthly brunch, but at the heavenly banquet? Now the Pharisees, of course, think that they are all booked in for that heavenly banquet and that the sinners that Jesus is fraternizing with will most certainly not get a seat. And so Jesus tells them three parables to show them how wrong they are, to show them that Jesus has come to seek and save broken, sinful, lost people, 
like you and me. And that that's who will get a seat in his kingdom and at his heavenly banquet. So the parables show us, first of all, that that Jesus is just like a shepherd. That's verses 3 to 7. A shepherd who goes after a lost sheep. Or, verses 8 to 10, he's just like a housewife who sweeps the place clean in order to find a precious coin that has been lost. The point is, God is in the business of rescuing the lost. And to really press home that point and make one or two other points... Jesus tells this third parable, the tale of two brothers. So, number two, two brothers. It's a family story, to state the obvious, about a father and two sons. And as Jesus, who really was the greatest storyteller ever, as he tells the story, it's very obvious that the father represents God. Now, I don't know what your view of God is today maybe you think he's a hard taskmaster or a demanding tyrant Jesus says not at all God is like a father a father who loves his children and whatever we have done and wherever we have been he invites us back whether we have stormed out of relationship with God saying I don't want to know you God or whether we've just drifted away And become cold in all our religiosity. Jesus was prompted to tell the story, remember, because of the criticism from the religious establishment. So look back to chapter 15, verse 1, one more time. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So notice there are two groups of people around Jesus. You might like to call them the sinners and the saints, the sinners and the religious crowd. And what do you know? Of course, the two sons in the story represent these two groups. The younger son, well, he's like the tax collectors and sinners, the lowlifes of society. Today, I guess they'd be the drug dealers, the rip-off merchants, and the prostitutes. And the older son, well, he's like the saints, the respectable crowd, the religious crowd. I wonder today, as you hear the story, which are you? Jesus is inviting you to hear the story and find yourself in it. Where are you in this story? So, with those two groups in mind, Jesus sets out on his story, asking, can we identify ourselves in it? So first, there's the younger brother, the first son. Have a look at verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. You can picture the scene, can't you? The younger son wants to cut loose. Dad, he says, you know that life insurance policy you have? Well, I'd like my share now, thanks. I want my inheritance. But when do you normally get your inheritance? Well, normally it's when your dad dies. So here the son is effectively saying, Dad, I just wish you were dead. He's saying, Dad, I just want your stuff. I want your benefits. I want the inheritance. I want the cash. I want the money. But I don't really want you. 
And that is the way so many of us treat God. We're we're happy to live life in God's world, reaping his benefits and blessings, enjoying the good things he has made, breathing his air, but never giving God a thought. And certainly not living a life of complete devotion to him as a son would for a father. So the son wants the father's stuff, but he doesn't want the father. And that is summed up so well in just two words. In verse 12, he says, give me. I think teenagers across the land are familiar with that phrase. Give me my stuff. Parents around the world know that that attitude is not right. And it's not right to treat God that way either. Give me. And so in this one devastating conversation, their relationship seems to be ended. He's like so many people who say, God, I don't need you. I want to run my own life, my own way. Get off my case. You're cramping my style. I don't like your rules, etc. And I reckon that the younger son, as he walked away from the family home that day, would have felt great. Heading off down the driveway, he's got his back pocket bulging with cash, his share of the inheritance. He's cutting loose from the father's house and the father's rules. He's in charge now and he's going to have a good time. He's off for wild living, verse 13. No more of his dad's stupid rules and restrictions. He is free. And again, I hear so many people say that that, that that's what they want with God. If they even think he's there at all, they just want to be free of him. Free of a God who they think takes all the fun out of life, who's always telling them they shalt not this and they shalt not that. They want to be free. They think that will be better. And so off goes the younger son for sex and drugs and rock and roll. What many young men dream of. I mainly dreamt of the rock and roll bit when I was younger, but there you go. And he has great fun. For a time at least. It seemed great until the money dried up. Look at verse 14. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. Now, feeding pigs, that's a pretty mucky job. But we might think, well, at least it's a job. He could have done a lot worse. But remember, for a Jew who didn't eat pork, this is the most disgusting, most degrading job of all. It's hard to imagine, really, what would be the equivalent for us today. I couldn't really think of anything, but something that would really disgust you. Those are the depths to which this guy has sunk. And on top of it all, he's desperately hungry and desperately lonely. Once the money went, the younger son discovered that cruel truth that that the friends went as well and the parties and all the rest of it. So he's hungry and lonely and working a degrading job, but verse 17, he came to his senses. This dreadful situation at least did something good for him. It brought him to his senses. I wonder how often do we look at a life which seems more wild and more fun and more free with jealousy. We think it looks great. The reality, of course, is very different. And maybe it's true that some folks have to hit rock bottom 
before they realized that life without God, the life they thought would bring such excitement and such freedom, actually isn't a life worth living. Certainly being destitute is a pretty loud wake-up call. And so he comes to his senses, he sees the mess he's made of life, and most importantly of all, he sees the mess he's made of his relationship with his father. And here's the thing, he began to see what he left behind with his father. Read again from verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country. He began to be in need. He went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed his pigs. Verse 17 now, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And yet here I am starving to death. His lifestyle was literally killing him. And he thought of home, home where he was loved and accepted, home where even his father's employees were better off than him. And so he did something that is very difficult to do. He said, I'm going to go and say sorry. That's verse 18. I will set out and go back to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. And so the younger son who used to live his life by two words, give me, now says two other words, I'm sorry. It's sad, so sad. Why can't we talk it over? Oh, it seems to me that sorry seems to be the hardest word. A bit of poetry there from Elton John. But it's true, isn't it? Sorry is hard to say. And yet sorry, well, that's how the Christian life begins and continues. The Christian life begins by coming to God and saying, I'm sorry, I've sinned. And anyway, the boy goes home, he he rehearses his I'm sorry speech. You can imagine him psyching himself up as he walks back down the drive, practicing the words he'll say before turning up on the doorstep. He's not had any touch with the father since he left. He's lived this whole time without a thought of his dad, really. And of course, as he rehearses his speech, I guess he's not expecting a warm welcome from his father. But here's the heart of the story. From verse 18, Father, I have sinned against you, against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But read on. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. So far, the story has focused on this younger son, but now the camera zooms in on the dad. Again, I don't know what your view of God is, but the father doesn't stand on the step, frowning, arms crossed, finger wagging, saying, this better be good, or I told you so. No, the father has been longing for this moment. In fact, the father runs, which was quite an undignified thing for the man of the house to do. But he runs towards his son and throws his arms around him and welcomes him. And did you notice the boy doesn't even have time to get all of his I'm sorry speech out? 
Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's only half the speech. And as if that weren't enough, the father then throws a great party. Verse 22, bring the best robe, which was a sign of honor, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, which is a sign of authority and a place in the family. And sandals on his feet. That's a sign of being back in the family. The son is completely accepted. And verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and was found. So they began to celebrate. I wonder if you've grasped this about God. He is a good father. He does not treat us, as the psalm says, as our sins deserve. He is so generous, he rejoices to have us back, however far we've wandered from him. If you have run from God or been distant from God, the offer is there to come back and find unconditional acceptance. There is not a probation period. There is no purgatory There's not a a moment where you have to prove yourself. No, no. The father accepts his children. Isn't it good? Not everyone thinks it's good. For some people, in fact, it makes them angry. We're on to the older brother now, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked them what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him. The older brother is livid. How can the father treat the younger son like that? How can the father welcome him back? Here's the thing. Over the years, as I've explained the Christian faith to people, often at our Christianity Explored course, I have met many people who feel, well, kind of the same as this older brother does. They say to me something like this. Are you saying that whatever someone has done Whatever they've done, even if it's really terrible, like really terrible, you're saying that God will forgive them and have them back. You know, what about the murderer who repents? What about the terrorist who repents, they'll say? They hate it. And so does the older brother. But remember that the older brother represents the people back in verse 2, that is the religious people, the respectable people. Read again, verse 29. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Do you see what he's saying about the father? Oh, and about himself. He's basically saying, Well, I'm a good person. Well, I've never done anything wrong. I've not been off with the prostitutes. I've never been in trouble with the police. I've always worked hard. I've always paid my taxes. I'm a good citizen. And what has God ever done for me? Here's the real surprise in the story. 
the older son thinks he's an upstanding moral character. He's joined the family firm. He's worked hard. He's always around the father. And remember, the father in the story represents God. So I guess you could say, here's the sort of person you'd expect to find in church. He'd never miss a Sunday. On the outside, he looks very different from the younger brother. And that's true. He is different from the younger brother. But he's also nothing like the father either. You see the contrast? When the younger son returns, the father is glad, but the older brother is angry. The father greets him with open arms. The older brother meets him with clenched fists. The father embraces him as my son, but the older brother just calls him this son of yours. Can't even bring himself to call him brother. So you see, on the outside, this older brother looks like a model of unselfishness, but really when his guard slips, you see the truth. In just one verse, he uses the word I, me, or mine four times. Here's a guy who is bound up with himself. He is self-righteous. He's near the father all the time, but he doesn't have any love for the father. And that's how it can be with people who see themselves as respectable, even religious. They might look very nice on the outside, but don't have any real love for God on the inside. They don't have an ongoing, loving relationship with their father. Now, please don't hear me wrong. Being in church is good. It is very good. In fact, God tells us not to give up meeting together. This is a, a key thing we do to encourage each other from the scriptures to meet with God, to, to worship him. But there is a kind of empty religiosity which looks like the older brother but doesn't really love the father. And so do you see, on the outside, these two brothers could not have looked more different. But on the inside, both of them had actually broken relationship with the father. Now, I don't know everyone here in the building today completely. I certainly don't know everyone at home who's watching today completely. Maybe some of you have run a mile from God and blatantly broken his law in wild living. No doubt others of us seem quite respectable, but the Bible is saying that all of us, by nature, have broken our relationship with God. Both categories are miles away from a proper relationship with God. One has had an almighty row and stormed off. The other just grew cold and bitter and drifted away. But both are miles away. And just as the younger son is welcomed back by the father who goes outside to greet him, did you notice as well, verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Again, there's the graciousness of God, do you see? So as we come to an end, the question is obvious, really. What, what about you and me? Jesus tells the story, but he wants us to find our place in it. Where are you with God? Are you miles off in a pigsty? Or are you standing just outside the door in cold religiosity? 
The point of the story is that both types need to come to their senses, to our senses. The point of the story is that God offers his grace to both. The Father goes out to both to invite both back into relationship with him. Do you see his grace? Now you might ask, of course, how does this work? Well, don't forget chapter 9, verse 51. Where is Jesus heading as he tells this story? He's heading to the cross. What will he do there? He'll go to die. Why? To pay for sin. You might say, does this wild living with prostitutes not matter? Is it not wrong? Yes, it does matter. Yes, it is wrong. How can the Father forgive? Because Jesus has paid. He has stood in our place and died our death. He has gone to the cross for us. So that God the Father may open his arms to you and extend the invitation to come home. Let's pray, shall we? Maybe just have a moment of uh, quiet reflection. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this wonderful picture of your character that we see here. Lord, we know that you're not a God who delights in sin, but we thank you that you are also a God who has shown your love and grace by sending your Son to pay for sin. Father, we pray for each person here today and those watching online. Lord, we pray for any who are yet to return to you, the Father. Lord, we pray that today would be the day when they would see their need, the need we all have, and come back to you. And Lord, for those of us who are walking with Jesus, forgive us when we forget or distort your character. Forgive us when we are tempted to become like the older brother in a kind of cold religiosity. Give us, Lord, a love for you, for your character, and for this good, good news of the gospel. Help us to be those who know it and love it and speak of it and share it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening please feel free to share this podcast. And if you'd like to be up to date with each week's talk, why not search Burkhead Free Church on your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button. For more information, go to burkheadfreechurch.org.